0: Laws don't judge me. The show about the law in real life. I'm Laura Temmy, and I'm joined via the wonders of the internet by Andy Leonetti. Howdy. Hello, and baby Himetha. Hey, Laura. Hi. So we got uh, we got a very important topic to talk about today. It's a we're we're doing sort of a deep dive into a very serious subject that is very important. In the last few weeks, juries reached guilty verdicts in civil rights trials stemming from the deaths of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, and the first. Three officers who stood by while Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck were convicted of willfully depriving Floyd of his constitutional rights, both to medical care and freedom from unreasonable force. Both of those are criminal civil rights violations that could result in life in prison. Meanwhile, another federal jury found that Ahmaud Arbery was the victim of a hate crime when three men pursued and shot him while he was jogging through their neighborhood in 2020. Both groups of defendants also either face or have already been convicted on state charges. So today we wanted to talk about how civil rights are are enforced in both civil and criminal courts.
1: Yeah, and this is kind of a confusing terminology that we'll be using throughout here because it's criminal civil rights charges.
0: (laughs) No, that is a really good point because we have both civil and criminal courts and then we're Uh talking about civil rights charges. So we'll, we'll try to be as clear about it as we can.
2: And so there could be civil
1: civil rights violations as well. All of the charges are sort of civil rights charges in the, in the second sense of the word, that they're, they're violating people's civil rights and that's what's at issue. But the first adjective kind of describes if those violations are being pursued criminally by the government, you know, government fining them or imprisoning them or mm-hmm. pursued civilly by a, a private citizen.
0: Exactly. Yes. Which I will get into. But let's do let's do criminal first.
1: We'll first talk about, in the context of the George Floyd trial, um, criminal civil charges, i.e. criminal charges brought by the government under the Statute 18 U.S.C. section 242 for violating someone's civil rights. I'm sure most of you guys already know this, but just a recap, summer of 2020, Minneapolis, there was a viral video that went out about all of this, uh, but basically police officer Derek Chauvin um, kneeled on the neck of George Floyd for around nine minutes, depending on whose testimony you believe, despite Floyd's protests that he couldn't breathe. Floyd soon died and The trial of Chauvin that ensued uh, which we actually released a podcast about the entire trial of Chauvin um, about exactly a year ago and y'all should check out that podcast, we can link it in the show notes, but basically Chauvin was found guilty on all charges including state murder and manslaughter charges sentenced to 22 22 years Um, and apart from state homicide charges, Chauvin also faced federal charges for deprivation of rights under the color of law which is this statute that I'm talking about Now, that is to say, under the Constitution, he was facing charges for depriving George Floyd of the right to be free from, quote, unreasonable seizure, which includes the right to be free from the use of unreasonable force by a police officer.
0: Which comes from the Fourth Amendment, in case anybody can't remember. (laughs) Right.
1: And but of course... It wasn't just Derek Chauvin involved in this whole incident. There were actually three other police officers there with Chauvin. Um, officers Lane, Kung, and Tao. Um, all of four of them were fired, and so they're all now ex-cops. Um, the other three ex-cops were supposed to be tried all at the same time as Chauvin, but apparently because of the pandemic, we can blame everything on the pandemic, I guess, Chauvin was tried separately first, and the other three scheduled for later. Federally, federal charges, all four officers were were charged with failing to give Floyd medical aid. Two of the officers were also charged for their failure to intervene um, in Chauvin's use of unreasonable force. Um, defenses that these officers claimed included that they had deferred to the seniority of Chauvin and themselves had little experience because uh, we we'll both Kung and Lane were only days into their new job, and they also alleged that their training hadn't been consistent. Um, Tao claimed that he couldn't see well from his vantage point on the roadway, and also because he reasoned that officers hadn't tried to perform CPR on Floyd, so he presumed that Floyd wasn't in cardiac arrest. So these are defenses that were used by the officers. However, a jury ruled recently, on February 24th, that all three of these other officers, um, guilty of de- deprivation of rights under the the color of law for for depriving Floyd the right of medical care. And two of the officers were convicted with failing to intervene when excessive force was used by Chauvin. And so these officers are also facing state criminal charges for aiding and abetting in the killing. But that state trial was pushed back to June of this year so that the federal proceedings could take place first. Um, but I just want to talk a little bit about what this these federal charges that they were just convicted of means. um, Under that statute 18 U.S.C. section 242 that we mentioned earlier, this statute refers to the color of law. So as a legal term, under color of law refers to an act by really any government official, could be a law enforcement officer. Here it would be the police officers. It refers to an act that has the appearance of being legally authorized. So the act itself, you know, seems to be legally authorized, but in fact, has no such basis. There, there is no actual authority behind the act. So this phrase was sort of early on included in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 for the purpose of um, making anyone who misused their power to deprive others of their constitutional rights liable. In this federal statute that the officers were charged under, the statute talks about anyone, any government official under a uh, the color of law. So that could be under the color of, under the guise of a statute, ordinance, regulation, or custom. They appear to abide by something legally sanctioned. That officer, if they deprive any other person of rights, privileges, immunities, not only under the Constitution, but any laws of the United States, so any federal laws, or subjects a person to different punishment, so this kind of implicates equal protection arguments, subject someone to different punishments, pains, or penalties on account of that person being a different race, color, being an alien, um, basically treating someone differently, that person is subject to fines and imprisonment, and that those fines and imprisonment sort of depend on the consequences of this action. So if sort of nothing major happens, then that person should be, it's subject to fines and imprisonment of not more than one year. If bodily injury results, however, that those fines presumably go up and that imprisonment can go up to 10 years. And if death results, as has been in the case of George Floyd, that penalty becomes a possible imprisonment for any term of years or life. And that person actually may be sentenced to death. So pretty serious, pretty serious consequences that can happen in this particular case.
0: And since the other three officers who, yeah, sort of did nothing while while Chauvin did what he did, they could face life in prison because they've been convicted of this. Whether that's likely, personally, I'm not sure. But yeah, they, they face very, very high consequences for this.
1: Yeah, because the, the sentencing, of course, hasn't happened yet. And the sentencing is completely removed from the jury. Um, so the judge sort of has some discretion, but has to follow some federal sentencing guidelines. So we'll just see what sentences result. But this is kind of a major, somewhat unprecedented case. So it, it, it was definitely a big win for a lot of civil rights activists, the fact that the jury did. Uh, find them guilty after not a lot of deliberation i think it was like 10 hours right
0: yeah well and, and as he as you alluded to earlier this all can get a little confusing because especially in cases of like excessive force by police we often have multiple charges going on in mm-hmm. both civil and criminal courts so what i'm going to talk about is the civil actions that often come along with these charges this is all under and we're talking about the united states code when we say usc yeah um It's not a college or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) Not University of South Carolina.
1: (laughs) Exactly right. So
0: 42 United States Code section 1983 is where we get the civil actions where it often comes up in excessive force cases where someone has been subjected to excessive force by police. There's separate charges brought by the government against the officers who do that act but then the person who is the the subject of that force can also bring their own suit in civil court and this statute was originally enacted as part of the Civil Rights Act of 1871 to enforce the 14th amendment and in case you need a little refresh on the 14th Amendment, that granted citizenship and equal rights and protections to the people who were enslaved prior to the Emancipation Proclamation. And specifically, it says that the government cannot deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So like I said, this kind of, it provides a private legal remedy for someone whose civil rights have been violated by state governments or actors. And When it was passed, it was really aimed to undercut a lot of discriminatory laws that were passed after the Civil War and also address the failure by many states to prosecute groups like the KKK for their crimes against Black Americans. And unlike in criminal court, where the charges are brought by the federal or state government, these are, like I said, brought by private citizens against state officials. So then what about federal officials? Yeah, so you notice that I said only state officials. (laughs) So, yeah, the yeah, section 1983 only applies to state governments. However, the Supreme Court did establish a very similar claim in 1971 in a case called Bivens versus Six Unknown Federal Narcotics Agents, and it essentially follows the same framework as a 1983 case, except it's brought against a federal official, for example, US Border Patrol, the DEA, or the FBI. And so, like I said earlier, section 1983 claims often stem from the use of excessive force by police, but the statute is really, really broad. It actually applies to any rights, privileges, or immunities that are secured by the Constitution. So that includes Fourth Amendment protection against search and seizure, like we mentioned earlier, your right to an attorney and other Sixth Amendment rights, and also First Amendment rights like freedom of speech and the right to peacefully assemble. And one case that I wanted to bring up that was an interesting example of this in the First Amendment context is a case out of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals that I wrote about recently. Oh, that that guy. That guy with a shirt. <laughs> I love this case. It's a really it's a really interesting case, and I think a very important reminder that we value first amendment rights in this country and we value civil rights and so this decision by the sixth circuit just reinforced that so the background of it was a man attended the 2016 clark county fair in ohio joe you're gonna have to bleep me
1: here Uh, (laughs) (laughs) wearing a shirt that said the police did the did the opinion did the court's opinion bleep like bleep it out or did they use no no,
0: they just had it in there. According to according to his complaint, a few people commented on his shirt, but he just kind of was Going about his day, having a good time, but ultimately the fair's executive director asked sheriff's deputies to escort him off the fairgrounds. And as he went, the the way the the way it all kind of played out on the body cam footage is that this this guy he he lets the officers walk him out, but he lets them have it verbally as they're going out. Yeah, he did not hold it hold back his opinion that you know his First Amendment rights were being violated, that he had a right to be there, that he had a right to wear that shirt. Um, he called them thugs with guns um called him dirty rat bastards he <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that that's always a good one
0: yeah i think more people need to use that insult and he ultimately was charged with disorderly conduct although the prosecutor's office ended up dropping those charges and he ended up suing all six officers involved under section 1983 for infringing on his first amendment right to free speech and by the time it got to the 6th circuit court of appeals they held that yes he had a right to wear a shirt that said the police if he wanted to that was clearly protected speech and most importantly that his removal from a public event by armed officers meets the threshold of actions that we would that we say would chill free speech that's
1: a big first amendment thing right
0: yeah it just means that you know would this action cause either this person or other people to not want to assert their first amendment rights for
1: fear of having the same thing happen to them. So to clarify, it, Laura, uh, this 1983 claim, it's based under on a federal statute, but it's against the state of Ohio, I'm guessing, right?
0: It's against the specific officers involved. The specific
1: yeah. officers. Okay. So it's not brought mm-hmm. against the state. It's brought against a private individual acting in their public capacity. Exactly. Yep. And so even though it's only applicable to state officers, apart from the Bivens part of it, it's still brought in federal court. Correct. And the,
0: the officers involved involved... involved they and actually the the district court um, agreed with them on a couple of the claims in this man's um, complaint they claimed that they were protected by qualified immunity which is oh yeah
1: people really throw that one around what is tell us a little bit more about that laura
0: yeah i won't get way far into it we did do a full episode on it um back in 2020 so if you want to check out our making sense of qualified immunity episode um but it's a defense that was created against 1983 claims by the Supreme Court in 1967. It's not part of the statute. It's sort of a case law legal doctrine. Yeah, it's a legal doctrine that was essentially invented by the Supreme Court. And it shields police officers and other state officials from liability in these civil cases if at the time they acted, they were performing, they call it a, quote, discretionary function. So vague. Yep. It doesn't mean a whole lot. And uh, and if they, the other part, the other piece of it is if they didn't violate a clearly established constitutional right that a reasonable person in their position would have known. So that wouldn't really apply to First Amendment because that's pretty clearly established. Exactly. Yeah. It's sort of. It boils down to if they believed their actions were lawful based on the information available to them at the time, they won't face any consequences. But since since it was invented in the 60s, the Supreme Court has basically said that that qualified immunity protects people from all but kind of the stupidest mistakes that people can make.
1: So it's pretty powerful in protecting officers and therefore it's, I imagine it's pretty hard to bring a successful 1983 claim.
0: It can be, yeah. And that's why a lot of people, criticize um, the qualified immunity doctrine, especially since it's not part of the statute. Um, yeah, like I said, for more information on that, I would say check out that episode
1: where we go pretty far into it. So I know we're, we've are we been navigating a lot of federal laws here, but earlier I did mention that the other officers were facing simultaneous charges under state law. Um, those have been sort of delayed for the federal charges to proceed. But Again, there's a lot of, as Laura alluded to, there's a lot of sort of overlapping jurisdiction involved here. So there's lots of state laws that can be at place. Um, And Andy, I think state hate crime laws are also a big part of this. If you want to tell us a little bit about that.
2: Uh, Yeah, I can. But uh, the one thing I will note is that in researching this and is that federal action is usually where a lot of this stuff happens because state laws are really a patchwork. One of the biggest drawbacks of that is that hate crime reporting is really spotty. At the state level, 18 states do not require any data collection, according to the Department of Justice. So that does hurt targeting of resources. And 36 states don't have laws about police training for IDing and reporting hate crimes. I mean, forget the fact that we're talking about, that we were mostly talking about a hate crime committed by police officers. Um, it's It really is a patchwork. Uh, we have 46 states and D.C. have state hate crime enhancements of some type. It really depends on how each state treats each type of crime. Uh, Some don't include gender, disability, or sexual orientation-based violence in their hate crime statutes. Some only include what's covered in the federal Civil Rights Act race origin. Georgia was the latest to pass a hate crime law. They They did it after the Arbery murder. Includes gender and sexual orientation- there's only a handful of states left without hate crime laws. We got Wyoming, Arkansas, and South Carolina, just with with no statutes on the books at all.
1: And so the, these state laws that you're referring to are sort of involved in the Arbory murder, Ahmaud Arbery murder, is that right?
2: The Georgia one was only passed after mm-hmm. the murder.
1: So because there's the no ex post facto law rule that those new hate crime laws that were passed after the trial are not going to be applicable.
0: Right. But the, the men who did perpetrate Ahmad Arbery's murder did, like I said at the top of the show, they were convicted under a
1: federal hate crime law.
2: Yep, in federal district court. Yeah. In addition to their state murder convictions.
1: And, and that is a good point. Like you could be convicted for the same crime federally and under state law.
0: Yeah, it's really up to prosecutors. And I imagine there's some strategy there to figure out you know what the different states cover and filling in the gaps with federal if it were me doing it, that's what I would do.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so I guess we'll see that also with the um, with the George Floyd officers because now they are facing state crime charges. Now they're going to be facing trial for that in June. So we'll see if, um, since they've been convicted federally, how that plays out with the state charges of aiding and betting.
0: And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Laws, Don't Judge Me. Please subscribe to, rate, and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Check the show notes for related content. And if you'd like to contact us, send us an email at findlawpodcasts at thompsonreuters.com.